Welcome to AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. We're advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, and research. In this second episode of the three-part series on patient optimization and medical management prior to joint replacement surgery, we will discuss some additional ways patients can prepare for their operation by addressing certain identified risk factors prior to hip or knee replacement surgery. I am Jonathan Danoff and will be moderating today's topic. I am a practicing orthopedic surgeon specializing in joint replacement surgery in Long Island, New York, and I am a member of the AUKUS Patient and Education Committee, where our mission is to provide education material for patients who suffer from hip and knee pain and diseases such as osteoarthritis. We are fortunate today to be joined by two distinguished internal medicine physicians who are leaders in their respective fields, as well as two other orthopedic surgeons who are part of our national committee. I am looking forward to our upcoming discussion today. Everyone, can you please introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Pete Tacavello. I'm an internal medicine doctor in Indianapolis, Indiana. I've been the director of Indianapolis Perioperative Medicine since 2003 and my practice is solely dedicated to the perioperative care of orthopedic patients, and I've seen over 30,000 primary and revision joint patients in the last 18 years. My name is Dr. William Wallace. I'm from Marshall University in West Virginia. I'm a medical director of our Joint Replacement Center, as well as the medical director of our perioperative services department, and I've been taking care of perioperative patients for about 20 years. I'm Brett Levine. I'm an orthopedic surgeon from Chicago at Rush University Medical Center, specializing in hip and knee replacement, and I'm happy to be here tonight. My name is Matthew Bullock. I'm one of the joint replacement specialists at Marshall Orthopedics, part of the Marshall University School of Medicine in Huntington, West Virginia. Thanks for having me. Thank you all for joining us today. Bill, uh, would you be able to please discuss some other modifiable risk factors? Some things that we think about, for example, are patients with histories of blood clots, or on immunosuppressive therapies? Yeah, definitely blood clots is a big one. It's a major killer with, with a hip or knee replacement if not you know, treated appropriately. So that, that's one that we definitely get a history for ahead of time. We do tailor our post-operative care based upon that. We're fortunate to have a system at our facility where I have a team of medical doctors that actually takes patients post-operatively as well and, and follow up care. So we're able to manage anticoagulation through the whole process when we do find patients at high risk of DVT or history of DVT before, we do treat them a little bit more aggressively. Typically, we're using aspirin or DVT prophylaxis with TEDHOs in the majority of patients, but those at higher risk, we usually use Lovenox for a couple of weeks. We'll round out the full 35 days of anticoagulation with aspirin. So I'd say, yes, that's definitely a risk factor. We'll make sure that patients that have history of blood clots, that they're more than three months out from their episode and they've completed their uninterrupted anticoagulation. Anybody else want to chime in, Pete, on, on your uh, DVT prophylaxis? Or? It's a compromise between bleeding postoperatively and the patient's risk. We're very diligent in getting a accurate history on any previous clotting history, whether it was provoked or unprovoked, if it was with a previous similar surgery. And then those patients that we do deem high risk, we will push the orthopedic surgeons to take that higher risk of postoperative bleeding and wound healing difficulties with an anticoagulant. I mean, the guidelines always use Lovenox as the gold standard, but again, a lot of surgeons don't want to use that. The new direct oral anticoagulants seem to do just about a pretty 
fair job. They're a lot easier to manage. We have a good system with our pharmacist that even is able to get the medication for free for the first month. And so those high risk patients were mostly using the things like Xarelto or Eliquis medications, and it seems to do pretty fairly well. Well, when does someone need to be referred to a hematologist? We don't generally refer to a hematologist because hematologists, while they're experts in the whole field of hematology, sometimes they are a little nearsighted on the risk of bleeding and poor wound healing afterwards. So I think in my practice, we've become experts in this type of thing. And so we rarely will refer to a hematologist. Yeah, I agree. I very rarely refer to hematology. The the ones that I do refer to them are usually anemic patients that need iron infusions or that type of thing or need hepoetin. But as far as DVT prophylaxis, I totally agree. You know, they're kind of focused on their one aspect of the care and not necessarily the wound drainage for the surgeons. But in our facility, for the most part, we've been leaning more toward Lovenox, mainly due to the short half-life. If we do have the bleeding complications afterward, we can just pull it and we're good in 12 to 24 hours versus the Eliquis and Sorelta. We've had a little bit more issues with wound draining. So I kind of avoid those. But yeah, I totally agree with Pete. I, I don't really use hematology a whole lot in these scenarios. And we have our own bridging protocols. If there is hypercoagulable states, antiphospholipid syndromes, things like that. We take care of all of that uh, without really the the consultation. And what about immunosuppressive therapies? Lots of our patients have uh, autoimmune diseases such as rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, things like that. And some of these medications around while they're wonderful at suppressing the disease, also suppress the immune system. And obviously, as we all know, a suppressed immune system in a post-operative state is a dangerous thing for increasing the risk of a joint infection. So Bill, how do we guide our patients who might be taking something like an embryo or a medication like that? First of all, I'll quote them the data as far as infection risks that have been proven in multiple studies. The, the numbers change a little bit, but the majority of patients are very willing to comply with our recommendations as far as stopping these medications. And I pretty much exclusively use the 2017 collaboration between American College of Rheumatology and AUKUS. Pretty much that's standard for me to use. Pete, same thing? Yeah, absolutely. When those guidelines were published, I think it saved a lot of struggle with what to do with these medications. Prior to that, I was looking up every medication and reading each package insert, but they did a pretty good job. And the general gist that they came out with was the non-biological DMARDs are actually okay to continue. And then the biological ones, just as a simplification, you really just withhold one treatment cycle. So if you take a medicine every two weeks, you hold the last doses two weeks before surgery, and then you have surgery on that third week, which makes it pretty simple. Now, some of the more difficult medications, patients who are transplant recipients or patients who have lupus who are on medications that are going to be difficult to withhold, sometimes we're forced to continue. So the basic take home for our patients listening to this podcast is that we need to just work with our medicine doctors. The orthopedic surgeons have to work hand in hand with our medicine internists and our partners to make sure that we're helping to manage your medications. Certain medications can be continued. Other medications should be held for one cycle. And if you're a patient that uses one of these medications, as you know, you're on a cycle where every few weeks you'll take the medication. Just make sure you coordinate your surgery with your doctors so that way everything will time out appropriately and you'll be able to mitigate that risk. Something else we think about often or don't think about sometimes is proper dentition and dental care. Certainly patients who are more at risk for improper dentition or someone who has not seen a dentist recently or who's a smoker, someone who's lost a lot of teeth. And we certainly see these patients every day and some of them can have abscesses in their mouth and not even know it. And 
Certainly in my practice, I would never go into the operating room if I saw an abscess in someone's arm and do their knee replacement because I'm afraid of infecting their knee and the mouth can be a source of hidden infection. Matt, do you ever send patients for dental clearance, if you will, or do you think about that in your practice? I absolutely do. Being in West Virginia, we also, in addition to obesity, we have some patients with some pretty bad dental follow-up. So when I'm interviewing the patient, I tend to, you know, take a look at their mouth and ask them to open their mouth, especially if they're smoking or if they're a smokeless tobacco user. We have a lot of that in West Virginia as well. And we also ask them, when was the last time they saw a dentist? When was the last time you had your teeth cleaned? Any pain in their mouth when they eat, that kind of thing. It's one of those things we actually look at for almost every patient that we're going to plan on doing a surgery. But if they do, or they've had a history of problems, we definitely try to get them to a dentist, to at least get things taken care of, looked at prior to surgery. Because again, that's one of those modifiable risk factors something that we can change before surgery to hopefully improve their chances of having a, a better outcome. Brett, you kind of do the same? I do the same thing, um, but man, I think you're being kind of hard on the patrons of West Virginia. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but we, we have some poor dentition in Illinois as well. Um, I think pre-COVID, it was one of the things I always kind of did and, and tell my students and residents, we'll shake hands. There's usually a smile and a, how are you doing? And you can kind of get a look at, at what's yeah. happening. And if you're seeing a lot of missing teeth, then I'm thinking maybe they need some preoperative clearance. And otherwise, it's not something I send everybody for routinely. Anemia is another topic. Anemia is low blood count. Pete, how do we even identify anemia and why is that important? Yeah, anemia is important for multiple different reasons. I mean, number one, what is the etiology of it? You know, is it cancer, which can increase your postoperative DBT risk? Is it a GI bleed? We have one of the lower mortality rates in the country, but yet one of our highest causes of mortality is a ruptured ulcer of some sort. And then lastly, most importantly, I don't think people realize that the average blood loss on a primary joint is a significant amount of your total blood volume. And if you already are low in one of the building blocks of blood, it's going to be even more difficult to replace the postoperative blood loss as well as maintain for the long term. So we do work up every patient who has anemia in our office, at least the important aspects of that workup. We alluded to it earlier. I don't remember if it was Peter or Bill alluding to it, but that maybe sometimes hematologists will need to administer EPO, erythropoietin, a medication that increases red blood cell formation in the body. So Bill, do you ever give this to patients? Do you ever recommend it for patients that are found to be anemic? Anybody with a hemoglobin of over 10, some studies show a significant increase in mortality by administering it. So they would have to be pretty low and it would have to be very specific circumstances. The majority of the anemias that we're finding are, are more nutritional in the iron range or, or folate or B12 or, or some of those guys. So again, it's, it's a very rare instance that I'm going to give EPO. I can say in probably the past 20 years, it's five or six times. So uh, it's, it's pretty rare. So will you do iron infusions on those patients or just give them oral supplementation? We try oral supplementation. There is a large portion of patients out there that just do not tolerate uh, oral iron. And in those scenarios, if it's a more emergent surgery, not just the elective total joints, but maybe, you know, you know, revisions or those type of things, we may go the IV route just to push things a little quicker. Another real important topic that comes up every day is mental health disorders, whether it's drug or alcohol abuse, depression, anxiety. We know on the orthopedic literature that having these characteristics in some patients can be associated with poor outcomes or complications, patients being dissatisfied with surgery. Sometimes these are non-modifiable. You can't tell a patient not to have depression, but 
certainly can be controlled. So Bill, how do you talk to patients that have a history of depression or anxiety, even though it's already been identified? How do you handle that in the perioperative period? Yeah, that's a tough one. I actually was talking to Dr. Bullock about this earlier today. I mean, some of these depression patients, a lot of times their depression is coming from the fact that they can't ambulate and they can't do uh, a lot of the activities that they used to do and they have a poor quality of life due to it. So we don't necessarily screen for depression. We do you know, obviously document. My concern more with depression, anxiety, and those type of things is more related to the medications and uh, trying to alter our plan perioperatively in order to not cause uh, medication interactions. You know, we typically use a lot of Zofran and Tramadol and, and we get concerned more of serotonin syndromes and things. So we don't do a whole lot, I wouldn't say, unless somebody's severely depressed. And at that point, maybe we might do a, a psych referral, but that's about the extent of our dealing with it. Pete, do you do anything differently? Yeah, I mean, it's difficult because the detailed screening takes a lot of time and we take more than one visit, but we do ask all patients if they feel their symptoms are controlled, any suicidal thoughts, because I think uncontrolled anxiety depression is a high risk for readmission. Um, so we try to tease those out as best as you can, but that, that's a difficult thing in the short amount of time that you have. But patients who we do find that, you know, it comes out in the office visit that they're out of control, we do ask them to get psych clearance before having surgery. Brett, you said that sometimes you'll have psychiatry evaluate your patients. It's part of the clinic or part of the preoperative process. Do you ever specifically send for someone with depression or try to optimize them, or is it just part of the clearance package? Uh, I think there definitely are some people where we suggest that uh, it can be a, a difficult subject to broach if the person doesn't have that diagnosis already. And so, um, you know, we try to be gentle about it. But we also try to get them to realize that this is an elective surgery and things can go awry if we don't really optimize the patient in, in all aspects. And so I'll usually mention that to patients that after the surgery, they can go through a period of depression just from the pain. I kind of related a little bit to the postpartum blues in that they can get a little down. And if you're prone to that or you feel you're like that type of person, this is the time to talk about it before surgery. And we could do something to, to get out in front of this where we have seen some patients take some medicines preoperatively and then sail through the surgery. Now, again, that's not a, a scientific research project, but certainly it seemed to help those people. So that's how we try to explain it to them. We try to be gentle and again, use this as a partnership to get them better overall. Absolutely. Thank you for that. The final topic I wanted to just bring up is patients who've had recent intraarticular injections. So injections of cortisone or some of these, what they term the hyaluronic acid injections, the patients may know them as the gel shots or the rooster shots. And sometimes the orthopedic surgeon will say, hey, we need to wait a certain amount of time from your injection to do your joint replacement. Matt, why do we even say that as orthopedic surgeons to patients? Yeah. So we do know that when you inject inside a, a knee or uh, sometimes a hip joint, you're introducing something from the outside world into the sterile environment of the joint. So there is a potential chance of infection or something getting into that joint. And you don't want to increase their risk of uh, infection around surgery. So with any uh, injection, we usually wait about 90 days. There's also some other literature out there saying that if a steroid is injected into the joint, it can actually delay or alter the healing time after a hip or knee replacement. So on the air of caution, we wait about 90 days again for the body to absorb most of that steroid to, again, lower that risk of having an infection. And again, multiple studies have shown that, you know, that this is a reasonable time period. 
the closer you can wait to 90 days after an injection, that actually lowers your risk of infection. Great. Thank you. In this second part of our podcast series, we discussed a number of different modifiable, non-modifiable risk factors, including patients with histories of blood clots or pulmonary embolism, immunosuppressive medications, patients with dental issues, low blood counts, mental health disorders such as depression and anxiety, as well as patients who had recent injections of their joints. Well, I want to thank everyone for taking your time today out of your busy schedules and your ongoing commitment to this very important topic that greatly impacts patient outcomes. This information will be highly useful for our joint replacement patients who are preparing for surgery and will provide them more information so they can partner both with their orthopedic surgeon and their primary care doctors to maximize safety and satisfaction from surgery. As mentioned previously, if you would like more information, please go to our website, www.hipknee.aahks.org. Thank you all for being with us today and have a wonderful day. Thank you for joining us for AUKUS Amplified. Visit aahks.org to learn more about how members of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, and investigate in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.